Well, Pastor Walter Kim grew up in New York City. He attended Northwestern University with a major in philosophy of history uh, in the hopes of becoming a doctor. However, God called him into the ministry, and Walter uh, went on to receive his MDiv from Regent College in Canada and then his Ph.D. from Harvard University in Ancient and Near Eastern Languages. He is now the Associate Minister of Park Street Church in Boston. He is married to Tony Kim, and his two kids are Naomi, who is nine, and Nathan is 11. Pastor Kim also oversees the 4 p.m. contemporary service at Park Street Church. I know that some of you uh, serve in your local church and sometimes aren't even able to make it to worship in the morning because you're helping with different programs throughout the church. So I'd encourage you to visit the, the Park Street Church there and their contemporary service where college students from all over Boston gather. And, you know, some churches here start real early on Sunday mornings, 11, 1130, and, and that's very difficult uh, for some of you to get up for, and we understand that. So if that 11 o'clock hour is just still too early for you, maybe you want to consider the 4 p.m. service at uh, Park Street. But would you please give a warm welcome Welcome to Pastor Walter Kim. Thanks, Greg. We would be delighted to uh, have you swing by and visit us at Park Street Church. We actually have a very long relationship with the ENC, very faculty members, administration, former students, current students have uh, attended over the years. Uh, And so it's really a delight to be able to reciprocate and join you all here this morning. You know, as I uh, think about the passage, which we'll get to in a moment, Mark chapter 1, the opening of the Gospel of Mark, uh, I want to set the context by sharing a little bit of, by way of background, myself. Now, I need to take you back to my high school years. Very few high school students have, have had a profound religious experience on a date. For me, even getting a date would have been a profound religious experience, and but there I was on my junior-senior prom with uh, a date. And we did the, the prom thing, had dinner, dancing, and after-prom stuff. And Well, by the time the, the evening had ended and I dropped off my date, I actually had a very long ride ahead of me because we had lived pretty far apart. So I tur- turned on the radio in order to entertain myself and keep myself awake. But unfortunately, the comforting images of bed and pillow must have been too mesmerizing because... I fell asleep at the wheel. And just at that moment that I had fallen asleep, my car apparently hit an oil slick and careened off the road, slammed into the guardrail, crushed like an accordion, and flipped up in the air. I woke up. And, you know, it's just like Hollywood. My entire life passed in front of me. I thought about my friends. I thought about what had hopefully been my future medical career, my family. Even my SAT scores had kind of flashed in front of me. I mean, just everything. Life passed in front of me. But all those aspirations were just about to be terminated. This was my reality. Yet there was also another reality for me. Earlier that year, I had this transformational encounter with Jesus that had left a permanent stamp on my life. I had grown up in the peripheries of the church and of faith. But at that particular juncture of my life, when Christ had made himself apparent, I realized that this was a completely new reality. So there I was, flying in the car, about to die. And the final thought that lodged itself in my mind was, God, 
I'm coming home. That is the truest thing about me at this moment. The next thing I noticed was that I was lying on the ceiling of my upturned car. And I turned and I looked up through the shattered window. And there was a man with a baseball cap and a long white beard. I remember thinking to myself, I hope you're not God. You know, that'd be really disappointing. And actually, he wasn't. He was just some trucker that had stopped by to see if anyone possibly could have survived the crash that he had just witnessed. Well, I survived. I walked out of my mom's car with just a scratch on my head. I thanked God. Turned around and looked at my mom's car, and I thought, gosh, she's going to kill me. Lord, I'm still coming home. (laughs) I've often thought back to that moment. And I, I question this for you as well. What is the dominating reality of your life? Beyond the circumstances, beyond the pressures of grades and performance in your classes, heartache with a breakup, boyfriend and girlfriend, or, or the various things that you might be just hearing about from home on the phone. When you, when you have all those things, What is the dominating reality of your life? Jesus makes a radical claim on our life. He's not merely a tack-on. He's not simply one of many responsibilities. Jesus lays claim to making a paradigm shift in our lives. That no matter what chaotic situation you might find yourself in, even if it's flying through the air in a car about to die, his message is, in fact, an invitation to live life in the reality dominated by the gospel, by him. I want to invite us, I know you've done this a little bit in a moment of silent prayer, but I want to invite you with this context, this specific context and a specific question of what is the dominating reality of your life. I want to invite you just to take another moment of silent prayerful reflection and ask that the Lord would search your heart and bring you to a place of reality. O Lord God, you whose spirit searches our hearts, we want to be transparent and honest and authentic before you. We acknowledge that there may be things in our lives that our closest friends, our roommates, just don't know. Questions that we may have about you and life. We ask that there would be a moment of clarity during our worship today. To perceive you and your work in our lives and to embrace it. More importantly, to be embraced by it. And we pray this, that Jesus would be glorified. Amen.
I want to read a section from the, the Gospel of Mark right at the beginning. If you want to follow along, I don't know what your practice is in chapel. Notice that there are Bibles in front of you. If you want to follow along, it's right at the beginning, or you can listen along. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to meet him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and a spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. You know, the book of Mark starts with this prologue that foreshadows the meaning of the gospel in ways that are radically all-encompassing. He states right at the beginning, the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in the ancient world, writers didn't have the luxury of what we do when we hop on our computers and whip out our Microsoft Word. We could, when we want to make a point, boldface something or put in italics, or if you're using PowerPoint, you can make nice bullet-pointed uh, presentations in order to accentuate what you think is important and what you want your audience to grasp. They didn't have that in the ancient world. Instead, they used a variety of literary techniques to signal what was important, what was the major theme or subtopic. In this passage, Mark repeats the term gospel at the beginning, and then in verse 14, though it's translated good news in several uh, versions of uh, the English uh, translations, it is, in fact, the same word as found in verse 1. And he does this in order to make a point, because in the ancient world, one of the ways you could communicate your theme is by making a sandwich, saying something at the beginning, saying something at the end, And by framing it or sandwiching the passage, you indicate what the middle section is all about. Of course, the word gospel simply means good news. But how Mark sandwiches that good news is often very different from how we, typically, if you've grown up in the church, would understand the word gospel. Maybe primarily as hearing Jesus' message of forgiveness so that if we accept him, we'll be able to go to heaven. It's definitely an element of the gospel. And yet, the way that Mark draws out his explanation, the way that he fills out his sandwich in this passage, 
is really quite different from what you might hear nowadays. So what does the gospel mean? What precisely is this news? Why is it good? I want to use this metaphor of a house. Every building has an entrance. And in the very foundational sense, the gospel is that Jesus offers an entryway. Just as we wipe our feet whenever we go into someone's house in order that we don't bring dirt in there, the gospel is an entryway that calls for cleansing to enter into God's presence. And so we read in verse 4, And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins, and they were baptized in the Jordan River. Clearly, by beginning his narrative with John's preaching of the baptism of repentance and Israel's response by confessing their sin, Mark wants to indicate that the gospel is, in fact, about the forgiveness of sins. That's definitely a part of it. It confronts us with the very inconvenient truth of our sin and our profound need for forgiveness. To give our lives a thorough washing, as symbolized by the waters of baptism. And and just in case we don't get that message, clearly, Mark records in verse 15, the actual words of what Jesus says. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Now, the terrifying truth of our sin becomes more real when we approach God as he really is. And we're drawn to repentance, not because God is mean, but because he's gloriously good. And in the presence of that goodness, we cannot help but be brought to shame. Because of our sin, we shut ourselves out of a relationship with God. But, but that's really hard to get. In our society nowadays, the things that scare us the most are evil things. Right? Hollywood is able to create characters of such evil that they just can scare the pee wickets out of us. You go to a movie, and you know, growing up in my day, it was stuff like Freddy Krueger or the Halloween movies or, I don't know, Blair Witch Project or whatever it may be nowadays. Hollywood, Hollywood is very good at creating evil that is so wicked that it just scares us silly. What has never been able to be produced by Hollywood is a figure that is so good, so utterly pure, that we would be scared silly by seeing it. The encounter with God that brings us to repentance is not so much the wrath of God, but it's the kindness of God. That's why in Romans chapter 2, Paul writes, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. For those of us who see God as he really is, we see one who is so good, so incredibly lovely and winsome, in whose presence we cannot help be brought to shame. Do you know a God like that? A God who is so winsomely good and kind that you would just be brought to shame because of your lives, not stacking up to that not living up to the grandeur and the beauty of God itself. Beauty that would make us weep for its goodness. This is the reality of God. 
Every building has an entrance. Jesus is this entryway, this, this announcement of good news. Not just news that God is justly angry at sin, but that in God we have a person, the person of such utter loveliness and kindness and goodness embodied in Jesus who would reach out his hand that we would be brought to tears, that we would even be afraid of it. Could, could it really be that such goodness can exist? Now, however fundamental forgiveness may be, the gospel is even more expansive. The gospel is an entrance into a structure. And what is this structure? The structure of the gospel is the narrative arc of Scripture itself. The opening verses that build on this structure demonstrates that by how Christ is the embodiment of the Old Testament. The gospel is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so we read in verse 2, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Mark's purpose is evident. He wants to explain the life of Jesus through the lens of these Old Testament passages. He mentions Isaiah, but he actually weaves in quotations from Exodus and Malachi into this quotation from the prophet Isaiah. It's like he's saying he wants to quote the greatest hits of the Old Testament. And to understand Jesus and what he's doing in this world, the reality of his life, death and resurrection, he wants to to see the story of Jesus through the greatest hits of the Old Testament. And by presenting Jesus this way, by describing the work of salvation as something like a, a second exodus, to fully understand Jesus, Mark wants to wants us to understand that he starts in the stream of of redemptive history that, that begins with the first exodus. That Jesus really wants to deliver us. To deliver us from whatever forms of bondage we may encounter. Be that bondage to internet pornography. Or bondage to just this tendency to gossip and tear down. Bondage to anger. Whatever it may be that you encounter in your life, even the bondage of despair, the message of Christ speaks to that. It speaks to a reality that you can enter into. Deliverance from the deeper bondage of sin, Satan, fallenness. But, but unlike the first exodus, this kind of exodus 2.0 doesn't lead to a promised place. It leads to a promised person. The addressing of the deepest desires of the heart. Not to be found in a place. The security of a homeland, a land flowing with milk and honey. A land in which every Jew at that point had aspired to the Romans being expelled and judged. It's not a place. It's a person. Now, as you can see, I'm from Asian descent. And uh, I I was born in New York, as Corey had mentioned, but my parents came from Korea about a year before I was born. I grew up uh, always kind of yearning for Americana, wanting to fit in and wanting to figure out what, what it meant to be a true American. 
So I immersed myself in what I thought true Americans immersed themselves in, stuff like Disney when I was growing up. I wanted to see all the Disney movies. I wanted to get into football and basketball and pursued those sports until it, I realized that, um, well, I would be genetically hamstrung in pursuing those sports and needed to find other sports. But the one thing that I was never able to quite get around to do, but I just, in my immigrant experience, idealized, was fishing with my dad. I had, I've since gone fishing and I realized I really don't like fishing. <laughs> but in my young, earnest desire to fit in to America, I idealized fishing with my dad. I had this picture that all American dads took their son fishing on a lake. Early in the morning, they'd have their peanut butter jelly sandwiches, and they'd be sitting with their feet over the dock, and there'd be a slight mist over this placid lake, and they'd be casting their poles and just sharing life. For me, that place was a picture of peace and goodwill. It was a promised land. We, we all have a picture in the imagination of our soul of what the promised land would be like. Jesus seeks to invite us into that place of peace and security and goodwill. You may be coming from a broken family. And I certainly had problems in my family. And for you, that, that picture of peace is to have a father that would sit at the dock with you. Or a mother that would cease nagging and would just, I don't know, bake some cookies for you and bring it in and say, how's your day been? Jesus seeks to be that place of peace. The more we explore this structure of God's redemptive work, the more that we are invited through the entryway of forgiveness through Christ, the more we situate our story into the story of God that He's crafting for us, a story of deliverance, a story of peace and goodwill. You begin to realize that, like every house, there's a difference between a place where you live, a house, and a home place of security. When we, when we say house, we, of course, we mean a structure. I bought a house. We mean we bought a place to send our mail. But we want to change our house to a home, a place that, that's a lived reality. It's a place with pictures to remind us of parties past, of warmth and security. A home tells a story about someone's life. This is, may be what you do with your dorm rooms when you add those personal touches. Something to make it home. Mark's prologue coordinates the story of Scripture with the story of our lives, and he wants to invite us to make a home in Christ. When he begins the gospel, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's doing so in a very particular way. If I were to start my sermon by saying, I have a dream, 
that is deeply rooted in the American dream, you would begin to have images of Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement. They echo in your mind, and they start evoking certain emotions and aspirations. You hear that, and you just want to go out and do some good in this world. When Mark begins his gospel this way, he is evoking certain images and feelings and thoughts that would be apparent throughout the Roman Empire. Of course, the gospel has the content of the Old Testament, but it also has the historical context of the Roman world. For early Christians, the Roman Empire dominated. Their vision of reality was being forced upon the world. And in an age without internet or TV, one of the ways you imposed your vision, one of the ways the Romans imposed their vision was by creating monuments and inscriptions, dominating things like the Colosseum. It's also why archaeologists have discovered something called the Preen Calendar Inscription, which commemorated the birth of Caesar. I just want to read you a portion of it. The providence which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation of human life by giving it to Augustus, by filling him with virtue to do the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending in him, in Caesar Augustus, as it were, a savior for us and for those who come after us, in order to make war cease and to create order everywhere. And so we celebrate the birthday of the god Augustus, which is the beginning of the gospel for the world that came by him. See, when Mark writes his gospel this way, he is declaring a revolution. He is saying, you may have heard that Caesar claims to be God on earth, claims to be the one to make war cease and to bring peace everywhere. And his birth is to be celebrated as the beginning of good news for all of humanity. But Mark is saying, I'm about to tell you a counter story. The gospel is a counter story that rewrites the script of our lives. We all have stories that are being told to us. We're all being pressed into that story the story of family expectations, of our own ambitions, of cultural mores, materialism, secularism, whatever it may be, we all have things that press upon us their vision of reality. And here, here Christ is inviting us to another script, another story, another reality to be pressed upon us. And with Jesus, we have this invitation to live in the reality defined by him. Mary Ann Bird, in her memoir, The Whisper Test, tells a powerful story of how her reality can be reshaped by someone telling her a different script. Marianne was born with multiple birth defects, a cleft palate, disfigured face, crooked nose, lopsided feet. And as someone who had grown up a couple of decades ago, these deformities were not easily remedied. And as a child, what was even worse 
than the physical impairments or the emotional damage inflicted by other kids. You can imagine this. You've been on the playground as, as a kid. And the ridicule she would receive. One year, Marianne was in the class with Miss Leonard, one of the most beloved and popular teachers in school. Now, every student, including Marianne, wanted to be noticed by Miss Leonard. And the reason why Miss Leonard was so popular became evident, gloriously evident to Marianne one day. It was the whisper test day. As I mentioned, this was a couple of decades ago. Back then, in order to get your hearing tested, you would get it done at school. But you wouldn't be hooked up to any complex machine. It would be simple as walking up to your teacher's desk and having that teacher whisper something in your ear and you're repeating it back to her. The teacher would whisper something like, the sky is blue or you have new shoes. When her turn came, Marianne was called to the desk and she cupped her ear and expected to hear something like, I like your dress. Marianne wrote, I waited for those words that God must have put into her mouth. Those seven words that changed my life. Miss Leonard didn't say, the sky is blue, or I like your dress. What she whispered into Marianne's ear was, I wish you were my little girl. Nothing really changed for Marianne. She remained disfigured. She remained the object of her classmates' ridicule. But everything changed for Marianne. She began to see that the judgments of her classmates were not the only words, nor the final words to be spoken about her life. She began to understand herself as loved and lovable, and she began to dare to envision a future not constrained by her circumstances, but one that could transcend them. And indeed, following in the footsteps of her teacher, who set her free, Marianne Bird went on herself to become an acclaimed teacher, known for her compassion and kindness. What Jesus seeks to do, what he would want to do, even now, even right now, is to lean over and to whisper in your ear, I wish you were my little boy. I wish you were my little girl. I believe that God's spirit is at work today. His gospel as true as it was back then. By way of closing, I, I, I don't want to compete with what God's Spirit may be doing in your life. So I'm going to give you a space of a couple of minutes and just ask that you would pay attention to what God would seek to be whispering into your life.
Father, as we close this morning, I pray for those who feel unlovable. For those who feel they cannot be forgiven. For those who are burdened with grief and despair. All things baggage you never intended them to carry. May they recognize your deep and profound love for them and how you long to call them daughter or son. Give them the grace and the strength and the courage to respond to you this day, we pray. We give thanks for this day. We give thanks for this very powerful word this morning from Pastor Kim. And we give thanks together by standing and singing. Praise God from...